My father died when he was 45 of his second heart attack. I have multiple sclerosis. These don't seem connected. Heart disease is hereditary, but MS isn't. For me, heart disease and MS still connect. They connect because when I got diagnosed with MS, the neurologist said I had had MS for 25 years. I would have repeated episodes of falling, fainting, and being unable to get out of a tub. Because of my family history, I'd get a cardiac workup. The result would always be negative. Two, three, four times a year for 25 years. Spell, cardiac testing, results negative. I cannot get the incorrect diagnosis code of heart disease out of my many medical records. I really have MS. Another story. I have a friend who is 5'3", say 5'4", weighs 137 pounds. Somebody typed in her record that she weighs 317 pounds. Well, the weight was easy to fix the next time she went in, but she could not get the obesity diagnosis code off her problem list. While mine is annoying, you can imagine hers has severe implications with dosages and everything. My obsession with documentation errors accelerated with the start of electronic health records and supercharged with open notes and increased reading of our own records throughout my career. Calculating an error rate is really quite tricky. A 2020 study in the Journal of Informatics in Health and Biomedicine compared 105 secretly collected audio recordings of visits with unannounced standardized patients among 36 clinicians. There were 636 documentation errors, including 181 charted findings that did not take place and 455 findings that were not charted. 90% of notes contained at least one error. Yikes. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. My guest today is Virginia Lorenzi, the senior technical architect at New York Presbyterian Hospital and an HL7 standards developer. HL7 is a not-for-profit standards development organization that aids in exchanging information across electronic health record platforms like medical records and health apps. 
These standards for data exchange are required for clinical practice and evaluating the quality of health services. Errors in electronic health information make for faster mistakes. Not good. Virginia also talks about FHIR, F-H-I-R, Fast Health Interoperability Resources. FHIR is part of HL7. Don't worry if they feel Greek to you. Just know that they are data standards within a standards organization. Our conversation does combine common sense with the technical. I will break in when the gap seems too broad. You might want to skip a section and forego the details. Okay, so why don't you tell me what you're working on with fire and errors? So in Health Level 7, you know, which is the standards organization that develops fire, we created a work group in 2019 called the Patient Empowerment Work Group. And the focus of this work group is to amplify the voice of the patient within all of HL7's work. Okay. And when we started this work group, and it was founded by Debbie Willis, who's the other person I'm talking about, Dave DeBroncart, who clearly Dave, and myself, the members, many of them are very much patient advocate voices. So it's a fairly special group within HL7, in my opinion. You're welcome to join if you'd like. We'd love to have you. I realize that time is a problem, and we're really trying to figure out how to include people in a way that is most helpful. What you brought up before, you brought up that sometimes you have to understand the technical to be a smart customer, to know and advocate for what you want. And I am a teacher as well. And I teach my students that one of my important goals for my clinicians that I teach is that they need to know how to be a smart customer and ask for what they need, not be snowed by the techies, also understand why it's hard to do so that then you can be a savvy customer and really get what you need. So when we in the work group, there are many things that a patient is interested in. And Patients are a direct customer of fire interfaces because data is now being freed from EHRs and going to these personal health records. We couldn't do everything, so we did a kind of prioritization exercise. And there was several things that really bubbled to the top, which was uh, consents and care plans and any kind of patient-contributed information, anything that the patient is contributing, and corrections, which is one of those contributed data. And uh, corrections was really a hot topic, a very big hot topic of the group. So we ended up with three projects, and then we're watching everything else. Our three projects is patient requests for corrections, patient-contributed data, really just trying to understand the whole field, and who's helping to run that is Jan. I know you're friend with, friends with Jan Ogdenberg. Um really wonderful person running our advanced directives projects. How do you get your advanced directives where you need them, even if you can't communicate it or someone else can't communicate it for you electronically? So that's another project we have. And uh, myself and Debbie Willis are the project leads of the Patient Request for Corrections project. And the idea of this project is, you know, Patients can get their data more and more now. And there's plenty of studies, just besides the fact there's plenty of vignettes, and just look at your record and your errors. But there's plenty of studies that say that the record is riddled with and that errors lead to bad patient care and all sorts of other things, as well as the fact that a patient looking at their record and talking about their record is engaged. So they're probably going to have a better outcome. But they're actually looking enough. If you really want to get someone engaged in some sort of diagram you're doing, put an error in it. 
then they're like, oh, wait, that's wrong. And then they're paying it. So when you get your record and you say, this is wrong, then you're starting to care more about yourself and you're defending yourself. When you see an error in your record, HIPAA provides, and this is, we're doing this on an international basis, and there's international rules, different countries have different rules. We're talking about HIPAA in particular. You have a right to get your record fixed. But the way to do that, it's like from the 50s or something. Oh, yeah. Usually a paper form. First thing is no one knows. Like you go to your doctor, they don't necessarily know. They can only fix one part. They can't fix it other places. They don't do it necessarily, it seems. And then maybe you finally figure out that if you go to medical records, then you might get someone who's actually going to work the problem. But medical records is often hidden in the basement. You don't know where you're going to find them. There's often a paper form. Maybe you can fax it in if you're lucky. Or you could be a high-tech place, which actually has an electronic form. And maybe the electronic form is one that you don't even have to print out, but you could press a button and send it in. But I'm telling you, that's high tech. And so you might have that. But then the request goes in and HIPAA requires a turnaround time. You have got to get a request return response within 60 days, although the organization has a right to ask for a 30-day extension. So that is in this day and age where we expect to have a response in nanoseconds, that's a long time to wait, especially if the reason why you want your record corrected is because you can't get disability or you can't get insurance or you're waiting for the surgery. You want the doctor to get the correct records. I have a loved one who was in an immunization series, but because it wasn't documented, they were delayed getting their second shot. So that's pretty serious. And as well as that loved one was really fed up with the system, like really, and patients, my understanding is you get the one thing of dealing with the fact that you're sick. But then you have this whole other thing you have to deal with, this extra burden of this invisible work of lots of administrative pushing. I I know for myself, I judge an organization by their billing practices because that my last, it doesn't matter how nice they were when I spent time in the hospital, if they're sending me horrible bills for years afterwards and I can't get them resolved until somebody will look at me and listen to me, I, I, I will drive past them, which has nothing to do with the clinical care. So now we are starting as a country to release more and more information because of the 21st century cures, it's much more common to have your results and your notes on your portal and even in these apps, these personal health record applications. And there's going to be more and more of that, which means more and more of the places where errors exist are going to be there. And it's almost overwhelming in a way, if you think about it, if, if you, if I just kept talking to you, which I'm doing now, and never gave you a chance to say anything, it would be, that might itself make you sick because you're over, you see all this stuff and you see this error and you want to do something with it. What- Virginia's going to mention the MAR, Medication Administration Records providers, electronic health record vendors, and patients probably put most error correction and prevention efforts into medication reconciliation. So, medications are recorded in an MAR, a medication administration record. Those records are used to keep track of people's medications. So yet many people describe incidents of medication duplication, medication interactions, and medication not prescribed and given, especially during hospitalization and return home. With our clinicians, 
we know that anything that's outside of the workflow is just downright dangerous. It has to be within the workflow, in that workflow. And I think you're a nurse, right? Yeah. So you understand that completely. You can't be doing MAR stuff when it's not on the MAR. It's got to be right in there. You don't have that kind of time to waste. All of us need to want to do things within our workflow. And the hassle factor, because it seems like a lot of people do not report errors in the record. And I'm not surprised because it's so hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you're on your personal health record, your app, and you look on it and you say, hey, that's not right. And you could push a button and that goes to the mothership to say, hey, this thing on my record's not right. And then even though they might have 60, 90 days, one, they got it. And then you can actually track and see a status. Oh, okay. It looks like it's queued. Oh, it looks like it's being processed. Oh, it's being reviewed. Oh, you know what? It looks like it was accepted, but not done yet. Oh, it was Parsons, it was denied, you know, but you're given a reason you get, and you get things back electronically within your process. At least you could have an idea that you're checking a box, you've done something about it and someone's looking at it, it got to a queue. And then the other thing is that sometimes there might be some back and forth communication. You might be like, hey, I took a picture of it and sent it. Or they might say, okay, I hear you say that you don't no longer smoke, but when did you quit smoking? And then the patient could respond back. So we also have kind of a back and forth communication mechanism. So we've actually created a draft fire specification called the Patient Request for Corrections Fire Implementation Guide. We've gone through four connectathons. Connectathons are in-person meetings of multiple stakeholders testing standards and workflows to help ensure that interfaces between IT systems work. Connectathons provide a detailed implementation and testing process to enable the adoption of standard-based interoperability by vendors and users of healthcare information systems. During a Connectathon, systems exchange information with corresponding systems in a structured and supervised peer-to-peer testing environment. Remember, It's tough to correct anything when you don't have standards. Remember Y2K, the millennium turnover? People anticipated errors in dates. They couldn't say, I was born in 22. Was it 1922 or 2022? The standard needed to be changed to a four-digit year for mistakes to be fixed, not a two-digit year. So we've been testing it like with real code, kicking the tires against it. We do not have any EHR vendors who have written code, but they participate. They pay attention. They listen. They've given us advice. We do have some great guy from New Zealand who stood up a server to pretend he was the EHR to respond to correction requests in very funny ways. And then we have a couple of patient apps that are really apps that are out there that have are trying this out and seeing how they would show it to their the patients that use their apps. One really allowed an annotation right in the, the record, and that's how they were able to send it. And people had different ideas on even how the design should be, and that's the whole idea, which allows innovation to happen, and different people have different ideas. Um, so we've gone through four of those. So this is really agile software development, standards development. And now we're going to do an official HL7 ballot. So the ballot is planned. We're, we're going to, it's our um, second ballot of the work group, but first ballot of this project, and it's happening in May. Here we discuss how decisions are made about data standards. Remember that birth dates of standards 
Is the year 22 or 2022? Gender has standards. Male, female, on the birth certificate, cisgender, transgender, intersex. Are decisions made by voting, consensus? Who votes? I find this other stuff fascinating. If you don't, skip ahead for about 90 seconds. And so a ballot um, serves to for, to, to, for consent, meaning that whoever it is that has a vote. Yeah, so that would be the first. So who votes? No, to vote. So to participate in HL7, like the, the calls and everything, you don't need to be an HL7 member. And you can even vote on those calls for things, for decisions, without being a member. But to attend the HL7 three times a year working group meeting, there's a fee. And typically they're in person, but... Um, through May of this year, they're still remote. So it's been pretty cheap because it's remote and the travel costs are a cost too. But you have to be a member of HL7 to ballot or you have to pay a fee for the ballots to participate in a particular ballot cycle. And the members are typically, it could be an individual, but a lot of organizations. So hospitals and Okay, so people who are members or pay a fee something goes out to them saying thumbs up, thumbs down for standing. And more than that, when you vote, you cannot allow to just say thumbs down. You have to provide what exactly don't you like and exactly how you would correct it. So it's, it's, if you're, it's, it's like reviewing a document with a vote. So you review okay. a document and you make suggestions on how to correct it with your vote. Okay. So the once, so say that there is no financial burden and it, something gets voted up, meaning, okay, so it's something is accepted. Does that mean that it's the the process is for one record? What would happen is, let's say the ballot passed. Yeah. So now we would be able to publish a standard implementation guide. So we have an international standard HL7 fire implementation guide for patient requests for corrections. So that's like, you know, the gold standard out there of what you would use if you want to implement Right. In a standard way, a patient request for corrections workflow. That doesn't say that anyone will be motivated to do it. That's a whole other thing. And that is also why we kind of two things we're looking for from this project. One is we want advice from people who understand the problem to see are we getting it right. And we also want people to help get the word out there and socialize the need for something like this. Um, because we do want it adopted. We, the whole reason why we're not doing this for fun, we're doing this because we think that this could be really meaningful to patients and their caregivers. I find this is very important. Like I've said, data is ink on paper until it's analyzed. What does data mean? The analysis is a shadow until someone uses it, tries it, adopts the lessons, the learning. Similarly, standards are ink on paper, albeit heavily resourced, time-consuming ink on paper until it's used, adopted in code, and electronic records and apps. And I think there's another benefit that puts things on a work queue for a provider that then they can have a queue. So it, it, it's a way to communicate with them versus them answering the phone. So it, I think it also has a benefit as on the other side of it, but uh, it helps streamline things. Yeah, I guess what, what I'm asking is that this is wonderful because I see 
an error here, and then I can push a button and start a process that is a combination electronic and person process to correct an error. I'm a person that has, I see six different specialists and they're on different systems and some errors are unique to a record and some are universal, meaning that error got, you know, populated in lots of places. And, and I know the difference between a process with a clinician that writes their note collaboratively with me versus those clinicians that don't. And so with the clinicians that have real-time writing notes with me, first of all, they're about me instead of about them. And the the negotiation about what's accurate happens in real time. And there's way fewer errors. And an error is not an error is not an error. There are errors where it's the wrong med. Or there are errors where my weight is 100 pounds off. Or there's an error that we didn't agree to that. You know what I mean? Like in terms of planning. So there's different kinds of errors. And that's or, different from two other things, but there's still, people can still ask them. I'm 10 pounds lighter now. That's an right. update. Yeah. I no longer smoke. That's an update. But the fact that you recorded that I smoked last year when I really quit 10 years ago, that's the error. Another one is I'm not obese. Right. Where maybe that is the terminology that the clinician thought was appropriate for the chart, but still having a patient's voice on that could help activate the patient. There's still a benefit in that conversation because the patient does feel concerned that was there and wants to be heard. So that right. we still are interactions. The graphics are different too. And I appreciate, I led a couple of um, EHR implementations in my day. And the one of the things that I insisted on, which was not popular, but I insisted, is that the core data sets needed to be cleaned up before there was any kind of implementation or transition that we weren't going to. And the errors were very basic. Duplicate patients, duplicate clinicians, wrong information that were in like basic files. And so whether that's identity files or demographic files, and that was months and months of work. And you might say, you might look at your chart and you might say, I don't have this, I don't have HIV. And then when the medical records people, they look at it, they might say, yes, you don't. That's someone else's result. Oops, let's move it. Yeah. Like it could be, you know, charts. There are some very serious intertwining yes. of charts that happen. Okay. These are maybe rare cases. They need to be worked. <laughs> Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app 
at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. Okay, so it sounds to me like what you're working on is necessary but not sufficient. And that's what you're talking about in terms of socialization. My last um, episode that I did with Bryn and Laura Martial, my, uh, I had a rant all the way through it which is that data is ink on paper or bytes on a drive and is fairly meaningless unless it's interpreted, used, acted on. Data by itself is not information. Information without action is. And so I appreciate that there's there's many pieces to this. You were the one that initiated this conversation. What can I do for you? Well, I want to bring up one more thing, though. You were All saying right. before you've got these errors, and some of them are with one provider, and some of them are proliferated, right. which is welcome to the world of interoperability. If you had one of these personal health records, and I don't know if you've tried one, but if you had one of these, what they can do is they can allow you to get your data from a whole bunch of different organizations and bring it together. It's still, it's not, the technology is still not like we'd like it to be, but you usually look at a directory. So you would say, and you don't even have to have the data in your system to say it's wrong. You could just say, I know I have data wrong at a system. And you get a directory and you say, okay, that system, I want to correct there. That system, I want to correct there. And then you could actually have a list of, I've requested corrections from five different systems. That is, in theory, possible. And that's some of our examples. Here, Virginia is talking about directories. Directories are listings. Here is a listing of medical record systems. As I've said before, I see seven specialists who use three different electronic record systems. There would be a directory containing those three systems. Knowing about directories is all part of understanding a bit of the technology behind the problem of fixing errors. The more understanding we have of technology, the more we can hold our own in conversations about fixing whatever we're trying to fix. Remember, it's the technology expert's job to explain it to you so you can understand. As Virginia has said, take a stab at it. If you're wrong, they'll jump on that and want to correct your misunderstanding. Be like a mule. Hang in there. Other thing is that the HIPAA rule says that if a record is amended or if, if a record amendment is denied, request is denied, and especially if a patient disagrees, that disagreement or the amendment is supposed to actually be sent to other places where you've sent the data. And that was really written in the paper world. And I don't necessarily think that necessarily happens now, like especially the disagreement. I doubt that gets sent like on a care transition, but it might matter where you say you don't smoke, they say you smoke and you disagree and you explain why you disagree. You might want that disagreement going along or the amendment that says you don't smoke going along. But so even though it's fixed, they may have already sent the data. So it's like a problem. So another thing that we're looking at is as a phase two is to start looking at those kind of data types and also potentially proposing them as USCDI fields. If you've heard of USCDI, the US core data set for interoperability. And interoperable core 
standardized and agreed upon and used across healthcare to transfer data across those applications. A simple example would be that the core data set only allowed last names to be one word, not two or more as some appear in birth certificates, or that we record temperatures in the U.S. as Fahrenheit, not Celsius. So another person who's a big advocate for this project is Grace. Do you say her last name? Cordovano. Yeah. Yes. I um, love Grace. She, yes. And so you'll notice that she'll tweet about this. Oh, yeah, totally. Love you to retweet it. Oh, yeah, I do. I would love your help in socializing this, helping us with vignettes and also helping us just understand how we can do this, make sure we get this right. Like, what are we missing? Yeah, I think this is really important. And if you correct your, if you try to correct your records, very interested. If you actually try to walk the process and get your records cor- corrected and know how it goes. Well, corrected meaning through this process or corrected no. anyway? Any which way possible. Oh, I can tell you. I like, so I, I have multiple sclerosis and I was diagnosed in my, I'm almost 70, and I was diagnosed in my 50s. And when I got diagnosed, the neurologist said I'd had it for 25 years. And he could see that in my, you know, brain scan. My wife and I could piece together the episodes. And it happened since then. What happened is since my father died at 45 of a second heart attack, I always got a cardiac workup that was always negative, I'd say one to four times a year over this whole span, and I would get a workup that would always be negative. Then finally, I had a a PCP who dogged it till I got a diagnosis. She was convinced this was not cardiac and dogged it till I got a diagnosis. But I have cardiac diagnoses in my record because I've been worked up like tens of times for cardiac and it's always been negative. I, I just can't get that off my record. It's, and it's not worth it. But I have to say to everybody, whenever I have a new physician, this was MS. But that was like a manual process of saying to the doctor, whoever was new, and they were like, oh, it's just too much work to get it to change. I know. Thank you for telling me. I'll keep that in mind. Do you know what I mean? And even being a nurse and being in the C-suite of healthcare, I couldn't. It just was so burdensome. In talking to some medical records people, I've heard that, yeah, we've had to change things in 10 places in the record. And then we have to go and figure out who can make the change because that doctor's not with us. And I moved quite a bit over my life from Detroit to upstate New York I mean, to Western Massachusetts, to West Virginia, to upstate New York, to Boston. And so I have, this has followed me. Again, until my PCP in here in Boston, I just kept saying to her, something's wrong. This is not right. I'm not right anymore. It's, I don't care. It's okay. So yeah, I understand. I I gave up, but, and so that's, and that's not even that, I don't find that my story that serious compared Jan, I love Jan's story of Jan. She's a small person. Maybe she weighs 135 pounds, and her record ended up saying that she weighed 315. 
And she'll talk about what she tried to do to get that changed because it affected her, the dosage of her meds, that she was considered obese. Um, You know, I mean, and it was just like they transposed some digit one time. And it was, it's just crazy. And now to me, that's dangerous. Yours is dangerous too. Let me just talk to you about time. So you have a sense of what I'll juggle in thinking about this. I think this is really an important issue. And I've, I've been on this issue in, in, you know, the last 25 years of my career. So it has come up over and over in different roles, especially when I led some EHR implementations. I was telling you that really brought it to a head to me when I just it was just common sense to me to clean up data sets. And, and when I saw how difficult it was, it heightened my awareness of the problem. My obsession with the proliferation of errors in healthcare data, claims, and clinical extends into research through my clients, PCORI and PCORnet. Research depends on data filled with errors. When I ask about cleansing data, researchers tell me they have ways of cleaning that data, but they don't take the corrected data and then amend people's records so they're accurate. I realize that's impractical with our current systems, yet we live with it. So I'm also interested in research, and I'm not a researcher, but I haven't been on the faculty at Columbia. I don't really know how that happened, but it, it, it happened. So I'm, I'm thinking about this a bit, but it would be nice to have people research how much how much work goes into getting your record corrected, like measuring that invisible work, what these errors mean to being able to do research, to be quality of care. Some of that has already been done. And how many errors out people, patients well, find? Well, the, the people that are key to that, as far as I'm concerned, are Joint Commission and NCQA. Because if Joint Commission and NCQA say that this is something we're going to evaluate, your process for correcting errors, there will be a lot of attention paid to it. But before anything's going to end up in their court, yeah, like I think, and even if it doesn't end up in their court, I think having science helps having some science around it. So having science that shows that that there um, is a problem with getting records corrected might would be a helpful thing in my yeah. opinion. So I would be, um, here's what I would be willing to do is I will consider, I am definitely going to do at least an episode about it, if not a couple, because I think this is really important. You've really motivated me to delve into it more since I got your email. And that's okay. And I would be willing to, and, and since I love Grace, and I, she and I have worked on several projects together, and she's a dream to work with. Just so much fun and so bright. I can think of a couple other people. I don't know, Kistine Monkhouse. She's a mm-hmm. vlogger. And she is really, she's a really smart communicator. She has really grown with the use of her communication tools. So I would be interested in the, yeah, how do you communicate about this stuff? I would commit a couple hours a month 
to finding and like when when grace puts out something and i see i retweet it or whatever whether it's in linkedin or um twitter those are the kinds of things i feel like it's the least i can do and so that whole idea about how do you communicate this stuff i'm interested in that how do you tell the story about this stuff there was an article written in jama recently and then grace tweeted that out but if, if not jam but grace Right. But if Grace writes something, or if you do a podcast, or if Christine does something, then it's just this all these different media sources that are right. all saying something about it with their stories. Then all of us retweet it. Then that also, I just think, will lead to the... Do you know Peter Elias, he and Grace and I did a project together with the Society of Participatory Medicine. I'm... Maybe the end of next week, I'm going to interview him because he's a guy who changed his clinic practice to uh, deal with the problem of errors and really what he did it from a participatory medicine point of view. And so I think he's a guy um, whose voice I want to include because he's taken the bull by the horns and changed how he did that practice to prevent errors. That perspective is really important for this project, just the problem. <laughs> it's so big. It's so big. Yeah. And, and to think that we do research on crap data, oh, you know, we that we think that medical methods. records is good data, is like, right. how could we think that? We have sophisticated methods to clean data. Yeah, we do. But do we use them? I will, and I'm going to introduce you to Debbie. I met her in the Blue Button Plus initiative. Is that possible? Possibly. That was like yeah, my first foray, that's 20 years ago or something. And that was like my first foray into national informatics. And I was really ineffective. <laughs> I did accomplish one thing. I got them to increase the definition of care team to include the caregivers. That's a you should give yourself some credit for that. That was, that was no matter what we do, the caregivers get left out. You, wait, that's like extra credit. Yeah. I don't need to do the extra credit. No, yes, you do. The caregivers are really important. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was the one thing I accomplished from weekly for eighteen months. That one so, thing. So we'll join very technical HL seven calls, and we'll be like, "Wait a minute, but did you think of the caregiver?" Oh, yeah, we left that out. Okay, we'll put it in. All right, <laughs> that'll be the big accomplishment. But I think it's a big accomplishment. Yeah. All right. It's lovely to see you and talk to you. And I'll put you in my loop about this and you do the same. All right. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was a wide ranging conversation indeed. I want us to appreciate that electronic health systems are full of errors. Those errors have an impact on lives and on research. We could correct those errors, but we need an infrastructure beyond going down to the basement and asking clerks to accomplish the impossible. It's too technical? Virginia's HL7 patient engagement team tries to work the technical end, the standards for processing errors. However, as with almost everything in healthcare, you can't separate the technical and the human. Error gums up workflow and lives. Correction won't happen unless fixing becomes routine, one step at a time. 
I have a recorded chat with Peter Elias in the queue. He's a primary care doc who shares his approach to patient engagement, open notes, and correct documentation. Keep the faith. Keep up your good work. We appreciate all you do. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.